Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. What an intro, okay. What's up? I sat in the back on purpose because I'm a, I'm a big fella and uh, I don't like the block lyrics, so. <laughs> we doing all right? Okay, I'm not beating around the bush. I just don't want this to be a cold start, okay? So let me just pray really quick. Father, we just want to say thank you for today. I want to say thank you for my siblings. I pray that whatever I communicate will be in alignment with what your spirit wants to communicate to this people. And we just submit all of this, and may you shine your face upon us this morning. It's in the name of the Son that we ask, Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. Okay. Palm Sunday. It's Holy Week. Let's go. For some of y'all that don't know me, I'm a loud brother, so you're just gonna, I'm not yelling at you, I just really get passionate about this stuff, okay? So, in the beginning, God, you're like, what does that have to do with Palm Sunday? Okay, we'll get there. <laughs> in the beginning, God created the skies and the land. How many of you are familiar with these words? This is Genesis 1-1. It's another translation of it, but the same thing. These words open up the scriptures. It starts a whole arc of a narrative. And as you continue to read on from Genesis 1-1, you get story after story after story that builds on this narrative about a chosen family that God would redeem his creation through. You familiar? Okay. And as you read, God's redemption and reconciliation of his creation would ultimately hinge on an anticipated human. But throughout the Old Testament, or what you want to call the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh, whatever you want to name, Throughout this, this, this um, progression of scripture, there's a, a silhouette, per se, that, so, that, that starts to form as people start to anticipate this coming one. Well, who's the seed of the woman? Who's the seed of Abraham? Who's the seed of David? Who, who are these, uh, who, who is this mosaic starting to form? Who is this all about? It's what the Tanakh is pushing forward. This is the beauty in the work of the Hebrew Bible, which has a life of its own. And I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't neglect the Old Testament. We can't get Jesus without it. We can't get the church without it. Amen? Okay, y'all awake this morning. I feel good now. The Hebrew Bible, it's a fully composed collection of literature about God's history with the chosen family of Sarah and Abraham. Within this collection, we see God's relentless faithfulness to his promises to this family. Oh, who's awake? Come on, sister. Come on. Oh, see, okay. Okay, she's setting the bar for y'all, y'all. He's faithful to those promises, even though the family of Abraham and Sarah continue to break the terms of the covenant. And as a result, this collection of beautiful literature is about a bunch of triumphs. And downfalls, there's mountaintop joy and valley low sorrow and everything in between. A piece of this collection is what we just read, is Psalm 118. Psalm 118, just a little history real quick, is a part of a, amen baby, <laughs> is a part of a subgroup of psalms called the Great Hallel or the Egyptian Hallel, which is a Hebrew word for praise. 
These psalms would be sung during the Passover festivities from the Israelites, where they would rejoice and celebrate of God's deliverance of their family from slavery in Egypt. So just to zero in on Psalm 118, the psalmist is unidentified. Yet we see that they speak of an ongoing suffering that they are that they are encountering. Yet God comes to deliver them and vindicates them. And God heard their cries and saved and vindicated. And it begins with give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say his love endures forever. So I just want us to participate in that. These are our ancestors in the faith. So I'm going to say the first part, and then you say the second. Okay? Don't worry. I'll lead you. It's just one quote you got. <laughs> Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Antioch say, His love forever. Everybody gets a gold star this morning. Come on, somebody. The cool thing is, though, I don't want to overshadow. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. But the word for love here can also be translated as faithfulness, loyal love, mercy, but loving kindness. The psalmist is meditating on the character of God that God himself described himself with. I'm a God of hesed. So let's skip down to verse 19. It begins, open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The imagery here is that the psalmist is approaching the gates of the temple, making a plea for those gates to be open to him or her. But you know what I mean. Okay. <laughs> the gates to be open to them as the righteous one who has been delivered by Yahweh himself from their foreign enemies. Their plea is answered and God is declared as their salvation. Where else have we heard of someone or somebody or a group of people declaring God as their salvation? The Israelites in Exodus 15 where they sing a song along with Moses after they have just been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They sing this bomb song. I don't know if you've read it, but it's amazing. <laughs> and in 15 verses 1 and 2, 2a, this is what they sing. I will sing to Yahweh, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. This is what the psalmist of 118 has in their mind. They're uploading this as they think about their own story. Are you with me? Okay. And he, they too declare God as their salvation. Now, we must wrap our minds around what salvation meant to an average Israelite. For many of us in our modern day, salvation can merely mean what's going to happen in the afterlife or it's merely individualistic. But what if salvation is actually a collective reality that individuals are a part of? What if Jesus, let me just skip forward really quick and I'll come back. What if Jesus is not here just to save you, but all of us, and you are a part of that? He came for a church, right? Not just Johnny or Elizabeth. He came for everybody. And he is following in the tradition of those who came before him. So let me snap back. Okay, I'm not angry. Okay, let me just, I just got to preface this. I'm just, <laughs> okay. Salvation in an Israelite mind was based foundationally in the Exodus. This is their first encounter with God's deliverance of them as a people. 
It's a collective, a national reality in which every single Israelite was a part of. God saved them from slavery and death in Egypt. So when God delivered the psalmist of 118 from their enemies, they understood that they, that, that is a part of what God has done for the Israelites as a whole. What he does for individuals is a part of what he's doing for the collective. Amen? Okay, real quick, let me just snap back again. What he's doing for you is not just for you, it's for the whole family. Okay, let me just leave that there. <laughs> but a little fun little note here is that the Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua. Whose name is that? Jesus. Little fun note there. You have become my Yeshua. More on that in a bit. Okay, you're not there yet. That's fine. <laughs> Verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Now, I know where your mind goes, but don't go there yet. There's a lot to unpack here, but the psalmist uses this metaphor where they depict themselves as a stone that is deemed insignificant by others, but God sees them as a precious cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone for an architect, if you're into all of that stuff, is the most precious stone that there is. It's the one that you want to show off in front of everybody. It's foundational to the entire building. It's what everything is measured off of, and it is the one that has all of the weight bore on it. The cornerstone, without a cornerstone, everything falls apart. So even though they have been rejected by others, am I moving too much? Sorry, I'm, I'm a former athlete, you know, I gotta get these hip flexors going. <laughs> but but what others have deemed insignificant, God says, no, this is the one that I'm lifting up. This is one of high significance. The psalmist states, although they were rejected by others, they rejoiced that God has given them significance and sees them as precious in his eyes. And then they close out the psalm. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join the festival, the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. So the phrase save us in Hebrew is yesha ana, which means save us, please. It's a, it's a plea. It's a beg. Please do something. You have to save us. This will later be transliterated into Greek to Hosanna. How many of you were today years old when you figured out Hosanna is not a name for God, but an actual plea? <laughs> me. Even as I was preparing this, it didn't hit me until this morning, like, oh my, wait, this isn't a name. This isn't, this is a plea. This is a beg. So as we were singing that, that song, what were we doing but pleading with God to save us now? Save us, please. I hear you, brother. <laughs> Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. The psalmist continues to reflect on how Yahweh is the God that once shone his light through the darkness of creation is now shining his light on the people of Israel. 
And as a result, they proudly claim that Yahweh as their God, and they lift him high. And the last phrase is a copy and paste of verse 1. So it ends and begins with talking about how his love endures forever. Repetition is, is key in the scriptures. It's emphasis. So, Psalm 118, right? You're like, what does that have to do with any of Palm Sunday? Everything. Remember, I just was talking about this silhouette that forms throughout the Hebrew Bible, right? You think about that imagery of this anticipated human, the New Testament authors come along and illuminate that the one who fills the silhouette is Jesus of Nazareth. The story of the scriptures find its fulfillment and continuation in him. He is the one who embodies and carries the story forward. It's not that once Malachi stops, that story is done with. No, that thing is being progressed on in him and in you. Here you are 2,000 years later in a building for what? What are you doing here? But participating in a story that has been going on for thousands of years. Clearly, you're, you're here for some reason. What's your name? Gary. Hmm? Gary. Gary, I'm bringing you with me wherever I go. I need you, man. So he embodies and carries the story forward, and that includes Psalm 118. So let's investigate and explore how that is actually the case. So you could take, put a finger on one, uh, Psalm 118, but also flip to one, uh, Matthew 21, if it's not already up there. If you've got a physical Bible, do your phone, whatever. Matthew 21, the very first verse. It starts off by saying, as they approached Jerusalem, talking about Jesus and his squad, and came to Beth, I don't know how to pronounce this, so just excuse me. Bethage, we're just going to say that. <laughs> On the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Pause. With Psalm 118 uploaded in your mind, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem as the climax of his mission to proclaim and usher in the kingdom of God to Israel first and then to the rest of the world. He sends his disciples ahead. Apparently, he might have did some, I don't know, Jesus is pretty dope. He could do whatever he wants. But it seems like he has some prearranged plans. The cold word is, hey, the Lord needs these. All right, brother, go ahead. Take those then. We're good. <laughs> but he sends his disciples to go get a specific donkey and colt, and he would ride on them into Jerusalem as he's claiming to be king. He knows the prophecy of Zechariah. It's uploaded in his mind. Jesus is not doing this by accident or by coincidence to fulfill something. He's stirring up stuff on purpose. He knows what lies ahead of him in Jerusalem. 
So what other proclamation can you make when everybody knows if you see somebody riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, it is a claim to fame to be the king? Okay, I hear more of you. Gary, I still hear you, brother. Let's go. (laughs) Jesus is doing this on purpose to stir up the memory. Who rode on a donkey? What king? King Solomon. If you go to 1 Kings, I believe it's chapter, I don't remember. It's 1 Kings. But he's riding on a donkey as the new king of Israel. And everybody is celebrating. So he's making everybody think about that. Solomon is the son of David. But Jesus says, Haha, I'm the ultimate son of David. Coming into the city that belongs to me. That I have come to reclaim. But I'm coming to reclaim it in a way that nobody expects. So the people recognize what he is doing. And a very large crowd begins laying down their garments and palm branches on the street before Jesus. On one level, Jesus is the righteous one for whom the gate of the Lord is open for. Psalm 118. He is worthy to enter it. Are you still tracking with me? On a second level, the people are declaring Jesus as their Yeshua. They recognize that this is the one who has come to save them. Yeshua is our Yeshua. Palm branches were a celebratory sign of victory, and it echoes what took place in Israel just a couple centuries before. When Greek Greek culture and Greek dominance is all over the known world, there's a revolt that takes place. Anybody ever heard of the Maccabees? Okay. What takes place? They revolt. They went a little bit. It's a whole long story. Go read about it. But this guy named Judas Maccabeus is is the leader of the Maccabees. And he's leading them to victory in their revolt against the Greeks. And they win. They take back over and reclaim Jerusalem. And when he's coming into town, what do they do but celebrate with palm branches? So the people in Jesus' day are seeing him as a new Judas Maccabeus. He's coming to deliver us from the Romans. Let's grab every palm branch we can. This is the one that we've been waiting for. He's here to deliver us from our enemies. And Jesus is like, yeah, but not as you anticipate. Let's continue. Verse 9. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are quoting Psalm 118. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. That's not a good stir. People are like, what is going on? Who is this? That's Jesus of Nazareth, brother. Better pay attention. Just as Psalm 118 is used to celebrate God's salvation from Egypt, the Israelites are now celebrating Jesus as the Messiah who saved them from Rome. So they cry out, Hosanna, Yesha, Anna, save us, please. The Roman Empire is the most brutal empire that has ever been on the, place, the face of the earth up to this point. Do you understand what's going on in Israel? Rome would come in and pillage your town, do horrendous things to your men, do horrendous things to the women, do horrendous things to the children. This isn't a game. 
We understand what's going on of invasion to this day, right? Could you imagine that on a scale? Could you imagine what it's like to see hundreds and hundreds of Roman soldiers approaching your town and there's nothing you can do about it? You're waiting for somebody to save you. My God, I can only imagine the fear and terror that Ukrainians are feeling right now. And other people who are being uh, invaded that the news isn't covering. Could you imagine what it feels like to be a believer in a section of the world that is very hostile to the way of Jesus and you see these soldiers coming in and you have no idea what they will do to you but you refuse to let go of Jesus and you give your body literally, not imaginatively, as a a, a living sacrifice. Romans 12 is not an idea to them, it is a reality. They're hoping for Jesus to rescue them as a collective people. This is the anticipated one who will once again shine the light of Yahweh upon Israel. So a quick summary of what takes place. Jesus enters the temple courts, starts flipping over stuff. It's a scene, right? Like that's, I've seen a lot of like artistic expressions of what Jesus is doing. Like, yeah, like, that's pretty intense. What is this temple court for? This is for the Gentiles to come in and pray to Yahweh. This is the only place in the temple that they can do this. And what does Jesus see? People exploiting the poor and desecrating the holy space where the Gentiles were to come and pray from anywhere in the world. This is how close they can get. And yet you guys are doing this in this place. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. And what tables do he flip over for the merchants? It's, it's not only um, uh, other merchants that we don't necessarily know about, but it's also those that are selling doves. For an Israelite who's poor, the animal that God has, has determined that they can sacrifice as an offering, it says, I will take that just like an unblemished lamb or a goat. It's a dove. This is a place where the poor comes to say, this is all I got, but I need to buy this so I can be in relational connectivity to Yahweh, and yet they are exploiting them. The scene is terrible. Jesus goes, enough of that. Man, I mean, okay. Leviticus is, is a fascinating scroll. If you take the time to read and see the literary design Here's the Bible project flowing out of me, but God doesn't just give laws or commandments for the sake of being a stickler. He's not bloodthirsty. He's not a jerk that has to have his way in order for people to get close to him. No, for him to even provide something like, hey, just offer some doves, I got you, is an act of grace. The boundaries that he establishes for women in Leviticus, if you take the time to read it, you're like, yo, that is world changing. He's working with the people in their time, creating new avenues for people to really be lifted up and to be equalized. Okay, I just don't want to skip over the fact of what God is doing in this temple and how humans took that and trashed it. So, 
There's a crazy scene that goes on there. Then Jesus curses a fig tree. And we're all like, what is that about? (laughs) It's a fig tree that has produced no fruit. It's kind of like a parallel to what the leaders are in Israel. They're supposed to be in these positions, but no fruit is being born. You will never grow fruit again. And it just withers away. Still a weird story. I don't care what you say. (laughs) But that's, that's what's going on there. It's another sermon for another day. But he gets approached by the religious leaders and they question him. So in response, he gives them a couple of parables. The first is about two sons. Go take the time to read it. The second, I'm going to just summarize, uh, is about a landowner who has planted a vineyard and rented it to some farmers. The time of harvesting came, so the owner sent three servants, one at a time, to go collect the fruit. It's time to get what what we got. And the farmers harmed them physically. Beat one, kill one, and I forget what they do to the third one. So then the, the owner's like, okay, I'm going to send my son. And you're like, are you stupid? Like, why would you, why would you send your, did you not see what they just did to your servants? No, 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 my son has more authority than them. They will respect him. And they say, ah, this is his boy. Let's kill him. Jesus is portraying the father as the owner. The former prophets that you read in the Old Testament, they are the servants that the father would send. And generation after generation, the Israelites would this, whatever this is, this is, this is what they would do to them. <laughs> and the farmers are the religious leaders of Israel throughout the generations. And he is the son whom the father has sent. Surely they will respect him. We see what happens a week later. Then he says something very interesting in Matthew 21, verse 42. Have you never read any of your scriptures? Talking to the religious leaders, don't y'all read your Bible? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in his eyes. He quotes right out of Psalm 118 where he's now using the same metaphor that the psalmist used to depict the leaders of Israel as the builders who are rejecting him. They deem him insignificant. Who's this peasant from Nazareth? How dare he come in here and start, you know, flipping over? Whose authority do you operate by? But yet, God sees him as the magnificent stone who he shows off and makes the cornerstone Jesus is the one who God established as the foundation for a new humanity that belongs to him. He is the foundation of the church, of a new, renewed Israel, both ethnically and spiritually. By quoting, excuse me, by quoting this psalm at the end of his parable, Jesus is doing some masterful wordplay. I don't know, I'm not just trying to throw out like Hebrew words just to be like, oh, I'm smart. I just want you to see like what's going on here. Some things we, we actually miss in English. But this is what Jesus does. The word for son in the parable is Ben. Whose name is Ben in here? No Bens. Wow, okay. And, and a friend of mine actually helped me see this. He pointed this out very explicitly. The word for son is Ben. And then he quotes Psalm 118. The word for stone, he, Jesus is is paralleling and depicting himself as the sun and as the stone. Stone is Eben. So they're rejecting the Ben and the Eben. Are you tr- is that not cool? Like, 
That's some wordplay. I feel like Jesus knows what he's doing really intentionally. Man. You with me? I see you. I'm sorry. You, you with me? Nice jacket, by the way. Okay. <laughs> Jesus is using a double metaphor to explain the devastation that the leaders of Israel, that they're choosing to reject the sun. They're choosing to reject the stone. And they will pay a price for that. Just decades later, after this whole thing goes down, Jesus warns the Israelites, hey, when things start to go crazy, flee to the mountains. Don't just sit up on your rooftops. Things are about to get crazy. And at the time, people were thinking, this man is ludicrous. He has no idea what he's talking about. Ain't nobody coming to destroy this temple. Okay. So, so the, let me just close up with this. The Father has sent Jesus to save Israel and to save us in this room. We find ourselves in the same position, crying out, Hosanna. Save us. You and I carry on the tradition of our ancestors in the faith, pleading with Jesus to save us. The same God who delivered the Israelites from Egypt, from slavery and death in Egypt, has come, has sent his son to deliver us from slavery and death. Slavery to what? Not to a group of people, but to sin and death and to save us from the kingdom of darkness ruled by that snake. The deceiver. There's plenty of titles that this being gets in the scriptures depicted in a whole bunch of ways. I'm sick of this snake. The reason I said that we need to cry out Continually, Hosanna is to remind us that even though we have come to faith and have been incorporated into the family, our need for deliverance doesn't stop when you raise your hand and say, I want to follow Jesus. It continues on until the day that he, he comes back or to the day that you die and you go on to see him in glory. Let me be clear. Jesus has defeated sin, death, the kingdom of darkness and all of that in his death and resurrection. That's solidified. That's not the question I'm posing. But they haven't gone down without a fight. And maybe it's just me. But sin is something that I have to fight every day. Ask my wife. She's back there. Ask my son. <laughs> I'm well aware that the triumphal king has gifted his spirit to me and I'm empowered by the spirit to depart from sinful things. But I am a flawed man. I'm going to sin today, if I haven't already, consciously or unconsciously, and I'm trying to fight against that. Sometimes it doesn't feel like sin is a defeated foe, both internally and externally. When I open up my door, I see a bunch of stuff in this world that I'm like, are you sure this thing is defeated? Sometimes I feel the same about death. It doesn't seem like, like death is conquered. That seems to be reigning victoriously these days. Just in the last year, I've lost almost 10 loved ones, just in a year span. Yo, what? You're sitting here telling me that death is defeated? Well, why do people keep dropping like flies around me? And that's just me. And I'm sick of it. How many phone calls I get every month, it seems like? 
I get a, a phone call from a relative, how nervous I get. I'm sure you feel the same way with some things, right? Okay. Okay, let me close down. Sorry, y'all. But ex that's internally, I'm dealing with all of that. But externally, gun violence is running rampant in the city that I live in. It's up like 300% from two years ago. And we're on record to beat last year's record. Where, what are we doing? Okay, that's another thing. It seems like death is having a good old time. And it, I'll keep this piece short. But sometimes it feels like the kingdom of darkness is giving major blows to the church in America. Seems like Satan is throwing hard hits, splitting churches over insignificant things. Politics, why are we splitting over that? Bro, the kingdom is not left or right, it's up. Okay, that, okay. I appreciate that, but I, I, I get it. <laughs> Man, the church, he's splitting the church over ethnic tensions. You don't think that I'm aware that I'm like one of four black people in this room? <laughs> no, seriously, and that's not a shock to, to Bend or anything. But like, it's, a, it's something just to think about. I don't feel any type of way, I love y'all, I mean. But many people that look like me and that look like you are in tension in the family of Jesus. Forget outside of the church, inside of the church. What? Yo, you guys are my siblings. I gotta deal with y'all forever. <laughs> y'all gotta deal with me forever. So we might as well get used to it now. But I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. Okay, I'm, I'm going over. I just got a couple more sentences. I mean, you name it. Right. Nevertheless, I know that Jesus is our rescuer. Sin does not get the final word. I know that. Death does not get the final word. The kingdom of darkness does not get the final word. Jesus has proven that. He has been my source of hope. Because even when I sin, sin does not reign over me. Jesus does. Even when my loved ones continue to drop like flies around me, it doesn't end there. Resurrection life is promised. Even when the enemy gets a couple licks on the body of Christ, Jesus has crushed and will finalize his crushing of the serpent's head. So, where does that leave you? I don't have any points for y'all. Let me leave a little tension there. We need to cry out, Hosanna. I don't have to stand up here and articulate what you might be feeling. You know what you feel. What do you need to cry? What do we need to cry out, Hosanna, for? What sin is, is going on in your life? I'm not going to take any guesses. But what death is reigning around you? Where have you felt the enemy kicking butt? But Jesus is alive. And he's coming back. There is a day coming when sin will fully be eradicated from existence. When death will die. When the enemy and all of the powers of darkness will be eliminated, this is the story that Jesus has been carrying forward and that we have been brought into. That is a guaranteed future. But in the meantime, we cry out Hosanna to the son of David. So what we're going to do, okay, 
This is what my teachers used to do when they got real serious. <laughs> okay, real quick. Uh, we are going to participate in taking the body and blood of the one who has come to save. Communion is where we are all leveled out. Doesn't matter if you have a PhD or if you're in the fourth grade, you've been following Jesus for 30 years, or you just started following Jesus yesterday. Everybody is leveled out at the table. So that's what we're going to do. And in that, I encourage you to plead for Jesus to save not just you, but all of us. Amen? Amen. All right, y'all. We're going to have Sean come up here, I believe. My guy, you better lead this, brother. All right. Grace and peace, fam.